I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but today is a huge day for Wilshire. One of our newest members is here for the first time, Christopher Garrett. I get to be the first preacher he ever sleeps through. That is an honor. We are excited for them to be here together, and it's good to see Danielle out and about. I know that she probably had a little bit of cabin fever, uh, but it's great to see the family together here. I saw several of you yesterday over at the North MacArthur Church where we met to celebrate the life of uh, Jim Wyrick, Yodi's father. Um, thank you guys for supporting Yodi and the family that way, and what a beautiful service that was. Uh, Yodi shared some beautiful memories of her dad. Who knew that Yodi's named after a Western character? Um, and then Jim and James and Taylor shared some thoughts and did such a remarkable job honoring uh, Jim. And uh, I was blessed to be a part of that, and I am just so grateful that we're part of a church that supports each other that way. So thank you for being there for that. And Jim and I also, um, separately, but we uh, were able to go and attend the memorial service for Howard and Jane Norton in Searcy, Arkansas on Friday. Many of you know Howard and Jane from his work as a missionary in Brazil for a number of years before they transitioned over here for Howard to serve as the minister of the Memorial Road Church for the editor of the Christian Chronicle, uh, dean of the Bible Department of Oklahoma Christian, all of these things at the same time. I don't know how he did that. Uh, but he and Jane were wonderful servants of the kingdom and blessed so many lives um, and it was, there was another service that you just leave, you leave grateful for how God has worked through the lives of his people. Um, and so I, I don't know if we've announced Howard and Jane's passing. Uh, Howard passed away last Sunday morning. Jane passed away about 18 days before that. And the family honored their, both of their lives together at one time. Uh, I got, to, I got to go up and have lunch. I didn't belong there, but I rode with Melatory and Clyde Antwine, who were both missionaries, both in kind of this missionary influence of Howard. And so on Friday before this service, I got to sit in this room with 300 or so missionaries and listen to them tell stories of the gospel going to Brazil and other areas. And it was remarkable. I wish the church could be together more often to do stuff like that. So anyway, I, I just wanted to share that with you because I know Howard and Jane blessed some of your lives uh, and certainly have blessed the Oklahoma City area churches for a number of years. We're in Mark chapter 9 this morning, and I'm curious if any of you guys can relate to this desperate dad's statement to Jesus. I believe... Help my unbelief. There's a sense in which the question or the request doesn't even make sense in itself. Belief and unbelief. How can you have both at the same time, in the same sentence, in the same life? And yet there it is. And as you read this story in Mark chapter 9, you can't help but hurt for this desperate dad. His son has never been able to, or at least not of recent, been able to speak 
or to hear. His dad's never heard him say, Daddy, or why do I have to do this homework? He hasn't been able to hear or speak. The son hasn't heard his dad say, now son, or even I love you. As you read this story, you find out that there is this demon that is possessing this child. There's a lot about demon possession we don't understand. Scripture doesn't tell us a lot about it. But what we do understand in this story, is it is making their life a living hell. This evil spirit has broken their life. The spirit will take over the son and throw him to the ground and and cause him to convulse and grind his teeth and foam at the mouth. The spirit will make his son sometimes just rigid, like a corpse. There's nothing this child can do to respond. And when Jesus asked the man for details, the man gives a story or an an image that the Spirit will sometimes take his boy and he he will throw him into a fire or he'll throw him into water. And the dad says, and he can't speak, which means when this happens, if you're not in the room, you don't know to help him. He can't cry out for help. And he can't hear, the father says, which means he can't hear the father say, I'm coming, son. And the son has been living this way. We don't know how long, but he's been living this way because this, this spirit won't let him go. And there is no desperation like that of a father or mother desperately trying to save their child. And the way Mark tells this story in Mark chapter 9 gives you a glimpse that for a moment, this desperate dad has a glimmer of hope. When Mark starts telling the story of Jesus, One of the first things, we've talked about this several times, but one of the first things you find when you begin the gospel is Jesus standing in a Capernaum synagogue and he's preaching on the Sabbath and there's a man with a demon and Jesus tells that demon, get out of that man, and he comes out. And Mark tells you that the people in the synagogue that day were just in awe and said, what What is this? This new teaching, this new authority. And Mark adds... At once, the fame of Jesus began to spread throughout the region of Galilee. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus and his disciples go across the Sea of Galilee. They get off the boat and they go into uh, this area, the the Gerasenes, where they meet this, this man who lives in the tombs. He's crazy. No one wants anything to do with him. The man, they can't even chain him. Nobody wants to go near him, and Jesus gets off the boat and walks right to the man. And like every other story in Mark, when the demons see Jesus, they lose it. We know who you are. Don't do this to us. And Jesus, in Mark chapter 5, 
cast the demons out. And Mark says that that man who's now been made whole goes throughout all the Decapolis telling people how much Jesus had done for him and everyone is amazed. And somewhere along the way, these stories have landed in the lap of this desperate father who has watched his son suffer. And for the first time in his life, he thinks there's something he can do to help his son. And so he takes his son in a desperate search to find Jesus, hoping that Jesus can stop the brokenness that he's had to watch his son deal with. And desperately hoping that this Jesus, who has cast out demons in other places, will maybe, just maybe, bring hope and relief and life to his son. And that's where we meet him in Mark chapter 9. He's standing at the bottom of this mountain. But instead of Jesus, he's there with nine of Jesus' disciples. Because Jesus, Peter, James, and John are up on the mountain doing something somewhere. This dad doesn't know where Jesus is at. All he knows is we got nine of the twelve disciples down here. And in theory, that shouldn't be a problem. Because again, if you've been reading Mark... You go back to Mark chapter 3 and you find out that Jesus chose these 12 men and he empowered these 12 men to go out to cast out demons to heal the sick. And so, it may not be Jesus, but his disciples have been doing this. So maybe they can help. But that didn't seem to be working out that day. These disciples, who in Mark and in elsewhere had cast out demons, this one, this one they can't touch. It's, it's almost for whatever reason it appears that this demon is above their pay grade. Two scholars said in a book, the impression is that for Mark, the disciples were first-year medical students who did not know what type of antibiotic to administer on this one. The disciples' inability only adds to this father's desperation. And that's where we meet him. Desperate for healing and disappointed with the disciples. Can you relate? If you were that father, what would you do? Nothing else has worked. Nobody else can help. And when we meet him in Mark chapter 9, he's in the midst of this argument that the disciples are having with the scribes. Mark doesn't tell us what they're fighting about, but you can only imagine the scribes saying, why don't you, why don't you do what we've heard you've done elsewhere? Your, your rabbi can cast out demons. Why can't you cast out demons? 
Or maybe the scribes are saying, try Deuteronomy 6 in the Shema, or try Psalm chapter 3, or Psalm 92. You know, all the all those texts we like to chant and recount and use in moments like this. Why don't you give that a try and leave this Jesus of Nazareth nonsense alone? And this desperate dad is watching these scholars and the disciples debate and argue. And all he wants is for his son to be healed. What the disciples don't know, at least the nine, what the scribes don't know, and what this desperate dad doesn't know, is where Jesus has been for the last little bit. Because Jesus has taken Peter, James, and John up on a mountain. And while all of this confusion and debate is happening down there, something else is happening up there. The way Mark tells this story is an interesting flow, because last week we talked about this when Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Not what does everybody else say. Who do you say that I am? And Peter gets the words right. He doesn't know what they mean necessarily. He says, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, now I've got to go to Jerusalem. Now I've got to suffer and be killed. And now I've got to be raised again on the third day. And not only that, if you want to be my disciple, you need to take up your cross and you need to follow me. To say they were puzzled by that may be an understatement. But... Forget that your Bible breaks up the chapter and just keep reading. And from that moment, Jesus then tells them, some of you are standing here that won't taste of death until you see the kingdom of God come with power. That's weird. Death, resurrection, humiliation, cross, but the kingdom still coming. And Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain. And while they're there, they see so many things that they can't wrap their mind around. Peter, James, and John see Jesus, and he's transfigured. He's he's changed. And they don't just see Jesus. They see Moses and Elijah. And there's so much happening in this text that I don't think they can grasp it at the moment. You and I can, reading all these years later, we can go back and say, oh, look at all this happening. In communion, Jim talked about the cloud of God, the Shekinah, this presence of God that went with the people. And lo and behold, in this story of Mark 9, there's this cloud. You read in Exodus, when Moses was on the mountain talking with God, Moses' face was glowing. And here in this story, Jesus is changed to be in all white. Moses is there, the great lawgiver and the, the leader of the Exodus. Elijah is there, this great prophet and leader of uh, a performer of miracles, the forerunner of the Messiah, as the Old Testament closed. All of this is bouncing around this text. And, and poor Peter, what do you say? Mark even tells you Peter didn't really know what he was saying here. I appreciate it about Mark. Peter probably didn't appreciate it, but I appreciate it. Peter says, uh, how about we build three tabernacles, one for you, Moses, and Elijah? 
And this voice from God, echoing Deuteronomy 18, says, This is my son. Listen to him. All of that imagery and prophecy, Moses and Elijah, the cloud, the quote, and all of that's happening on the mountain. And at the bottom of the mountain is this desperate father. And when Jesus steps into the story, he finds his disciples unable to cast out the demon. From that moment of power and glory, Jesus steps down and he finds this father who just wants his son to be healed. The way Mark tells the story of this father, he says in verse 17, Teacher, I brought you my son. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak, and I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they couldn't do so. Should have been sufficient. And the disciples should have been able to do this. So what is all of this about in Mark's story? And why should we care? Do you ever live your life between truths that seem to contradict? Live your life between things you know to be right, but you don't always live to be true, there's a psychologist who had this idea of cognitive dissonance. Two competing truths, and where you believe one thing and you do another thing. I mean, we all want to lose weight, but we still eat donuts. I've heard people do that. We all want to be healthy, but how many of us got up and exercised this morning? There are these competing values and competing things, and sometimes we feel and think or believe things that just contradict, and we don't know what to do with them. And throughout this story, that narrative and that tension is behind the scenes. We want Jesus to be the Messiah, but he's got to die. How do those things go together? We want Jesus to be the king, but he has to have a cross. We want Jesus to have glory, but that's going to be some gore. How do you make those things fit? And it may be that Mark writes his gospel to a group of people who are struggling with that question because one of the things about the gospel that was a stumbling block to so many people is how can Jesus have been the Messiah if he died on a cross? 
How can he be God's anointed if he was killed by the Romans? Makes no sense. Those two truths don't mix. You're going to give your life to a crucified Messiah? Paul says that's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's craziness to the Greeks. And yet right here in Mark, just after Jesus says, I've got to go to Jerusalem and I've got to die, he's taken on a mountain and he is glorified in the presence of God. And God says, this is my son. Listen to him. He's not crazy. What he is saying is true. He is the Messiah and he has to go to Jerusalem and die. And you have to take up your cross and follow him. Those aren't contradictory in God's story. In fact, they're required. And then you have this father. Who says to Jesus. If you are able to do anything. Have pity on us. Jesus says, if I'm able. Remember, the father wasn't on top of the mountain. The father didn't see Jesus transfigured. The father did not hear the voice of God. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. The father has heard stories of Jesus. He's heard rumors of Jesus. And he's come to Jesus and he says, if you are able to do anything for me, that my son at least just have pity on us. And Jesus says, all things can be done for one who believes. And that's when this father cries out to Jesus. I do believe. Help my unbelief. And again, we, we find two truths that we don't think can or should live in the same conversation. How can you have belief and unbelief? How can he ask Jesus, yes, I believe, help my unbelief? Doesn't he know, based on preachers and beliefs today, that you have to pick one or the other. You can't have both. And why didn't Jesus look at him and say, well, which is it? Do you believe or do you not believe? But that frames the question and the challenge wrong. Belief is not a set of propositions we're called to believe. Do you trust God? And if we're honest with ourselves, there are moments when I trust God and I want to trust God, but there are parts of my life where that trust is not sufficient. Do you trust me with your credit card? Do you trust the church with your credit card? Let me tell you my credit card number. I'd rather not. 
It's a debit card anyway. You'll hit the bottom quickly. There's trust, and there are parts of our life where the, the trust isn't fully there. And this father has heard the stories. And he's heard that Jesus can help people just like him. That Jesus has changed the life of people just like his son. And he desperately grabs his son. And he, in my mind, he tells his son, just hold on. I know someone who can change this. I know someone who can fix this. And he gets there and he expects to see Jesus and he sees the disciples. And maybe he's heard that the disciples have cast out demons and he says, your rabbi gave you this power, do something about my son. And they don't. And they can't. And this man's trust undoubtedly shrinks. Because what he thought to be true is looking like it's in danger for this moment. And then he sees Jesus and what he thought was going to be a slam dunk fix the issue sort of thing. Jesus says, do you believe? And he says, I do believe. But there's, there's this part of me in my life that's not fully there. And Jesus, will you help that part of my life? Help me trust you more fully. It's not a matter of what he believes or what he thinks. It's a, it's a matter of, do you fully trust God? And this man's issue is the same issue that the disciples have had. Yes, I believe that you're Messiah. But what about that unbelief that says, but I'm not sure about this whole cross and death part of it. I believe. Help that part of me that can't make sense of this. Help that part of me that can't fully commit to this. Help that part of me that thinks it's too good to be true. I believe. Help my unbelief. There's some of you today who are right where this father is. I know because I go through my week where this father is at times. And we've painted this picture of discipleship that says, once you've arrived, you've arrived and it's all fixed. And it, I wish I had the faith of that man who never has questions. And this story says it doesn't always work that way. That there are parts of our lives that make sense and parts that make no sense. There are things I understand and there are things I can't seem to understand. But faith is always about going in trust to the one you know can help it. And this son, it's interesting the way Mark tells you this story. This father says, Jesus, I brought my son to you. He didn't bring his son to the disciples. He ends up getting nine of the disciples and they end up not being able to do it. But this father says, I brought my son to you. And even though he can't make sense of it, and even though he has his doubts, and even though he can't answer the questions, and even though he can't engage in the debate with the scribes, what he does know is if there's any hope at all, it's found in Jesus. Jesus. 
And so he tells Jesus in this moment, I do believe, but help my unbelief. And I can relate to that. And I'm sure you can as well. And Jesus, as he has done throughout the story of Mark, he rebukes the, the spirit and he restores the boy. In Mark and in the Gospels, this demon possession issue and casting out demons is not just another one of the miracles. Oh, it's remarkable and it's miraculous. But when Mark shows you Jesus casting out demons, he is showing that Jesus is tackling the underlying root of evil, Satan himself. And the reason the demons scream out and cry out and beg Jesus not to, not to cast them out and torture them is because they know with the announcement of the kingdom that Jesus' arrival says there is a new king on the throne. And the demons are scared to death of what that means. And that leaves you with one other question as you finish the story. After this father takes his son restored whole now, and maybe for the first time hears him laugh or hears him utter the word daddy. And for the first time that this son can hear his father's voice and they walk off, the disciples look at Jesus and say, okay, what was with that? Why couldn't we do that? You know, we've had the ability in the past. You sent us out in the past. We went, we cast out demons, we came back. But why this one, Jesus? Why couldn't we do this one? And Jesus answers in a peculiar yet simple way. These kind take prayer. And it seems what Jesus is reminding the disciples is that you do nothing under your own power. This is of God. And don't you ever think that any great thing you accomplish or any great work that you do or any fantastic change that you make in anyone's life came because of you. Prayer is our utter dependence on the power of God. If you listen closely enough, he's already told them that. If you are going to follow me, you've got to take up your cross and deny yourself. So that when you encounter a problem like this and a brokenness in the world, what Mark is telling you and what Jesus is saying in this story is, your only hope is to go to Jesus. Your only hope is to trust in God. Your only hope is to deny yourself. Because what Jesus, what the voice of God said on top of that mountain, 
as Jesus is transfigured in the glory of God's presence, in the glory of that cloud of God's presence, in front of Moses, the rescuer and lawgiver, and Elijah, the miracle worker and prophet, with all of those present, God says, you listen to my son. That's where the healing is. And that's where the hope can be found. And so if you're like me this morning, you need to pray the same prayer that this desperate dad prayed. I believe that God helped that part of me that doesn't believe just yet. Can we help you with that this morning? Whatever you're facing, whatever's causing you doubt and to question, whatever part of you or corner of your life that's yet to allow a full trust in Jesus Christ to take over, can we pray for you? Or maybe you've come to the place in your life where you're tired of trying this on your own and you realize that your only hope is faith in Jesus Christ. Submission to Him. And maybe today you're willing to deny yourself, to meet him in baptism where we die and we raise to walk in his newness of life. Can we help you with that this morning? If so, we would love to do that while we stand and sing this song together.